This message is part of the teaching provided by House on the Rock Fellowship, a church caring for the Miami Valley region. Before you listen, be sure to access the notes in the download section of the message page. Have a Bible ready. Thank you for being our guest. Now, last week I was here in the office. It was late towards the evening and it seemed as though things were getting darker a whole lot sooner than they should have been as a large storm front went across from west to east and I could watch it go, this blanket of darkness that just seemed to move. It was shrouding. It was eerie in how thick the clouds were. I watched it move this way in front of the building. And it had gone much of the way by. I went, it's time for me to drive home. And as I was but a few miles from my house, coming down Troy Piquot Road towards Troy. The blanket was still very much there and things were very much shrouded, but it seemed as though someone had turned a giant orange spotlight on in my rearview mirror as the sun burst, it seemed, underneath that blanket of darkness and everything that was shadow and was covered and was mired in the kingdom of night was washed and painted over in beautiful glowing orange. The sun would not be kept back, it seemed, in that moment. And it was beautiful. As I saw, literally before my eyes, things in shadow becoming things in light. Here I was at the intersection of those two kingdoms. What was night being overwhelmed by what was light. We live in that space. Far beyond meteorology. Far beyond weather. We dwell at the intersection. Where two kingdoms meet. We bump into shadow. We bump into darkness and night. But we also know what it means to see the sun burst forward into that darkness. We have seen that interaction throughout history. Those of us who know anything of history know humanity has had some very dark, dark times, hasn't it? April 1994 in Rwanda, 100-day genocide as one people group sought to wipe out the other people group within that country. One of our global partners is from Rwanda, whose gospel purpose and mission is sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with those who were the murderers of his family. One of the saddest realities about that story, while messages of the massacre and the genocide were coming out throughout the world, no country would come to the Rwandan side. No one would come to visit. No one would come to help. No one would come to bring aid and save those who were being hunted by their fellow countrymen. No one would respond. No one would step up. And so 100 days later... When UN workers finally made their way into villages and cities, the head of the UN mission had this to say, in Rwanda, I shook hands with the devil. I have seen him. I have smelled him. And I have touched him. It's with that reality in mind that we come to the last part of the Lord's Prayer. Deliver us from evil. 
I've been trying uh, this year to help us fly at 30,000 feet concerning some of the most important uh, pieces of theology and scripture that the church has historically held on to. Jesus says that he is the truth and the way and the life. And we are to live those things out. How is Jesus the truth, the, the reality of Jesus, the truth of Jesus? We spent the first 10 weeks of the year going through the creed. These key facets, these foundational realities. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, Suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died and was buried, descended to the dead, on the third day rose again, ascended to heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty and will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, Holy Catholic Church, in the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. We are to anchor ourselves in what is true. Jesus said that he's also life. And so we've been going through the Lord's Prayer because is there any greater expression of the life that Jesus brings us and affords us but a relationship with God, experienced in prayer? The way we'll get to this fall when we talk about the Ten Commandments. That'll be fun. I'm looking forward to that series. But you should probably be able to now already fill out the entirety of the notes in front of you. As we've been working around this shape, this hexagon, character, where did we start? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. So write it down. Write down all of it. See if you can do it without me even prompting you. Maybe you've done it already. You can leave early. You're good. Just leave your tithe at the door. We'll call it even. Kingdom. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, right? Write that down. Again, prayerfully you know it by memory. Provision, give us this day, daily bread. Give us what we need for today in all of its shapes, in all of its facets. Forgiveness, we're a people of forgiveness. How can you recognize a Christian? They're a forgiving person. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. To walk in an honoring relationship with God is to walk in an honoring, forgiving relationship with those around us. To not do the one is to forsake the other. We're forgiving people. Guidance. We talked about guidance last week. Lead us not into temptation. Lead us not into the trial, the hardship, the difficulties. Sure, the Father of Jesus Christ has the blessing of the Holy Spirit to guide, has the scripture to guide, has godly people in their life to guide. But we spend our time talking about the conscience, the importance of a good conscience before God. How do I know right and left? We're going to come back to conscience next week as we begin our series on love. But after guidance this week, protection, protection, Deliver us from evil. 
If you've been doing the weekly reading and finished that up this week, you will have read through the Sermon on the Mount seven times during this series. Prayerfully, you have been immersed in what God has said, Jesus has said, his reality is and what matters. But let's unpack today, deliver us from evil. In 2019, CBS came out with a TV show called Evil. Watched a couple episodes. It was interesting. This is about the dynamics between a very cynical clinical psychologist and a would-be training to be priest being sent out on cases by the Catholic Church. Hey, is this a real demonic uh, oppression or are they just crazy? An interesting dialogue between science and religion and where does evil fall in all of that? What is the essence of evil? Well, what does the Bible have to say? The Bible tells us that evil is that pervasive, personal, powerful kingdom of night pushing against Jesus' kingdom of light. Evil is pervasive, personal, powerful kingdom of night that's pushing against Jesus' kingdom of light. Let me unpack some of these ideas for you. What do I mean when I say that evil is pervasive? From the opening pages to the closing chapters of the Bible, evil is present the whole way through, pushing and resisting against God's plan. Adam and Eve in the garden and walking in relationship with God. And sure enough, who shows up? Embodied in the shape of a serpent, there's evil to push against God's good plan. In fact, if you jump all the way over to the end of the book, in the book of Revelation, what do you see? You see that serpent coming back in many shapes and sizes. And what God does and Jesus does to bring about an end to evil. It's pervasive throughout Scripture, but you know as well as I do it's pervasive in your own life, isn't it? You bump into it at work. You bump into it in your marriage. You bump into it with your kids. You bump into it on the news. You bump into it in the store. You bump into it at the gas pump. You bump into it when you watch the news. Nations colliding against nation. Evil is pervasive. It's not just here or just there. But as pervasive as it feels, it is contained, believe it or not. Job shows us that in his book. As evil comes before the throne of God to sift Job out like wheat, the voice from the good throne says, you may, but you can't do this. You can do that, but you can't do that. You can take it that far, but you can't take it any farther. Interesting discussion, interesting polemic. Story of Job. God offering to teach us, in the midst of evil, will you trust me? In the midst of losing everything, will you trust me? In the midst of great pain. Evil is pervasive, but I also believe that we can see in Scripture that evil is personal. It's not some mindless disease, some shadow that's just nebulously working its way throughout our lives. It has intention and plan. It plots. Again, Adam and Eve up shows the serpent. It plots. It has a plan. It talks. It engages. There's a personhood to evil. That when Jesus bumps into evil and encounters and works against evil, 
He engages it like you would a person and evil will engage him. What is it that you want with us, son of man? It's not just a thing. It might use things. It might use disease. It might use weather. It might use your neighbor. It might use you. Evil is a person. It has personality and personhood. And it's powerful. Evil is powerful. If some well-meaning follower of Jesus comes up to tell you that the devil is impotent, step back. For the devil is not impotent. Powerful force is evil that followers of Jesus ought to take seriously. In Daniel chapter 10, let me show you an example. In Daniel chapter 10, a passage that's often helped me in prayer. Daniel has been given a vision that he doesn't understand. He's in fact overwhelmed by the, the beautiful plan of God and he's asked God for answers and insight. God, I don't understand what's going on here. I need you to help me know this vision you've given me. Week upon week upon week, he's asked God for insight and guidance. And finally, in Daniel chapter 10, verse 10, it says this, And behold, a hand touched me and sent me trembling on my hands and my knees. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you. This is an angelic being talking to him. Stand upright, for now I have been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. Then he said to me, fear not, Daniel, for from the first day you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God. Your words have been heard. God hears your prayers. And I've come because of your words. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. But Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia. And came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days. For the vision is for days yet to come. This angelic being, beautiful, powerful, comes to hey, Daniel, I've been trying to come to you for three weeks, man. Heard your prayer. The throne's heard your prayer. The throne, God in all of his beautiful, has sent wisdom and insight to you. And I was the messenger sent. I would have got here sooner, but another demonic being resisted me. Has kept me from getting to you. And we fought and we fought and we fought. And it wasn't until Michael, one of the great angels, came to help overwhelm that demonic being that I was able to bring God's answer to you. Interesting insights into the dynamics of prayer. Why doesn't it sound like God hears me? Well, there's probably a lot going on that you can't see in this moment. But evil is powerful. Evil is powerful. If you go to the end of the New Testament and you go to uh, 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5. There's another verse to look at. 1 Peter 5 verse 8. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith. Knowing that the same kind of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Does it sound like the Bible puts forth the devil as something that's impotent? 
are powerless, are incapable of ruining your life. He says, you stand firm, you be awake, you be alert. Why? Because the devil's like a roaring lion, a hungry, devouring lion that wants to get a hold of you and I. You must resist. You're in the same battle your suffering brothers and sisters around the world are participating in. In 1898, John Patterson made his way into the Ugandan jungle. He was charged by the British Empire to build a bridge over the Tsavo River. It was to help the British Empire connect the resources of Africa to the Indian Ocean. And he was there to build a bridge. But when he got there, he immediately met with rumors. Rumors of lion-shaped man-eaters that were taking men away in the middle of the night. Week upon week, men were disappearing as a pair of male lions, maneless lions, were taking co-workers away to their death. John estimates in his diary, it's hard to know if it's true or not, that throughout the course of this moment, this chapter, 135 were taken by this pair of lions. John knows he must do something about it, so he sets up a blind inside of a tree. And one night, one of the lions comes out and he shoots it and he wounds it. The process, he also ends up falling out of the tree and has to shoot the lion a second time, ultimately bringing that first beast down. That's one. There's still another one to go. About 20 days later, the second one shows up. He shot it. He shot it again. He shot it again, and it kept coming and made its way out into the jungle. Showed up another 11 days later. They had to shoot it three more times with big game rifles to bring down that lion. The workers and the builders convinced these weren't just lions. This is the picture that the Bible puts forth of an evil you are to resist. Oh, an evil that you're to stand against. But in the middle of this, in the middle of the war, it's so easy to get overwhelmed with the question, where is God in the midst of the slaughter? You look at genocide upon genocide and you look at murder and you look at, at deceit and, and you look at adultery and you look at the death of marriages and you look at the death of families and the pervasiveness of sickness. And maybe you've been there in the middle of those foxholes, whatever the foxhole might be. God, where are you in all of this? Where are you in all of this? I mentioned the Rwandan genocide, but we know very well that's not the only genocide that we've ever seen in history. The 20th century opened up with a power-hungry narcissist from Austria who wanted to rule the world and bury the Jews in the process. We've seen the images of what happened when Adolf Hitler mustered the Third Reich, what he did. You've seen images of Auschwitz and Birkenwald, the death camps and the chimneys and the mass graves, human against human, pervasive, personal, powerful. 
One man, Elie Wiesel, in his book, Night, accounts what his experience was. He was 15 years old when they were taken out of the ghetto and put in cattle cars, he and his family. And they were taken through the gate of Auschwitz. The very first day, his mother and sister taken off one way to the showers. He would never see them again. And his dad and how they experienced Auschwitz in the work camp outside of town. Later marched towards Buchenwald because the allied forces were coming through. He writes about some of the early experience when he was there first at Auschwitz. I wanted to read just a little bit to you. I have to skip over some of it because it can be kind of graphic. He's describing some of the hangings that they would see in the courtyard at Auschwitz. I watched other hangings. I never saw a single victim weep. These withered bodies had long forgotten the bitter taste of tears, except one. The Oberkapo of the 52nd Cable Commando was a Dutchman, a giant of a man of well over six feet. He had some 700 prisoners under his command, and they all loved him like a brother. Nobody had ever endured a blow or even an insult from him. In his service, quote-unquote, was a young boy named Pipel. A Pipel, they were called. This one had uh, a delicate, beautiful face and incredible sight in the camp. In Buna, where they were, the Pipel were hated. They often displayed greater cruelty than the elders. I once saw one of them, a boy of 13, beat his father for not making his bed properly. As the old man quietly wept, the boy was yelling, if you don't stop crying instantly, I'll no longer bring you bread. Understood? The Dutchman's little servant well, was beloved by all. His face was the face of an angel in distress. But one day, power failed at the central electric plant in Buna. The Gestapo, summoned to inspect the damage, concluded that it was sabotage. And they found a trail. It led to the block of the Dutch Oberkapo. And after a search, they found a significant quantity of weapons. The Dutchman was arrested on the spot, tortured for weeks on end in vain. He gave no names. He was transferred to Auschwitz. He was never heard from again. But his young Pipel remained behind in solitary confinement. He too was tortured, but he too remained silent. The SS then condemned him to death, him and two other inmates who had been found to possess arms. So one day, as we returned from work, we saw three gallows, three black ravens, erected on the Appelplatz. Roll call. The SS surrounding us. Machine guns aimed at us, the usual ritual. Three prisoners in chains, and among them, the little Pipel, the sad-eyed angel. The SS seemed more preoccupied, more worried than usual. To hang a child in front of thousands of onlookers was not a small matter. The three condemned prisoners stood together and stepped onto the chairs in unison. Nooses were placed around their necks. Long live liberty, shouted the two men. The boy was silent. Where is God? Where is he? Someone behind me was asking. At the signal, the three chairs were tipped over. Total silence in the camp. 
Then came the march past the victims. Behind me, I heard the same man asking, for God's sake, where's God? And from within me, I heard a voice answer, where he is? This is where. He's hanging here from these gallows. In tremendous moments of overwhelming evil and grief, it's easy to say God must be dead. Where is God in all of this? Where is he? The death of nations, the death of people groups, the death of marriage, the death of a loved one. That's what Ellie's writing about. But into that, we need to remember another hillside where three other Jews were hung. Where is God? He's there. In it. Amongst it. So we need to ask ourselves, did the cross do anything? to confront the wiles of evil? I mean, it's as pervasive as it's ever been. It's as personal as it's ever been. It's as powerful as it has ever been. Has the cross did anything? What did the cross do? Three passages quickly. In Hebrews chapter 2. You can write them down. You can look at them with me. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. What did the cross do? What did his death and sacrifice do? Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. Since therefore children share in flesh and blood, he, Jesus himself, partook of those same things. Why? That through death... He might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. Colossians chapter 2, verse 15. Colossians chapter 2, verse 15. This, being nailed to the cross, Jesus disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame, triumphing over them. In him. One more passage. 1 John 3, 8. 1 John 3, verse 8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So we have Jesus destroying and, and triumphing over and delivering us, yet I see evil every day. Some of these passages, though, have kind of give birth to some ideas and traditions, whereas now we take this militant action against the devil. We start yelling at the devil, and we start condemning and cursing the devil, and, and yelling against the demon of COVID. You just speak against the demon of COVID. Down with the demon of COVID. Down with the demon of debt. Down, you demon. You get down, demon of debt. The demon of greed. 
I, I speak against you, demon of greed. And yet, you look at your life and you're like, does that really work? Just name it and claim it, say it and slay it. Does that work? Did I not pray right when my loved one was dying from COVID? Is it, did I not slay it? Why didn't I slay it? When my marriage fell apart and I was praying for it, well, you didn't have enough faith. Oh. You need a bigger sword. Oh. Okay. Two thousand fifteen, February. Nineteen Coptic Christians had been kidnapped from surrounding villages around the coast of Tripoli and the Mediterranean Sea. And they were put on orange put orange jumpsuits on and they were marched along the sea as film tape rolled behind each one of them. There was a, a black hooded man from ISIS carrying a machete. They were told, just renounce Jesus. Well, if they would have just named it and claimed it, said it and slayed it, then they wouldn't have died. Don't think it works that way. Like the gospel is some magical incantation that washes over people with warmness and fuzzy and, and unicorns and kittens go through. No, evil is pervasive and evil is powerful. And those 19 men knelt and proclaim their Jesus, and they were butchered. So what, is, what did the cross do? That I must pray daily, deliver us from evil. Deliver us from evil. Those 19 men were catapulted into the presence of God. The book of Revelation tells us, shows us, the image before the altar is the martyred in Jesus cry out, how much longer, how much longer, how much longer? And the voice from the throne says, not much longer, not much longer. What did the cross do? The cross put an expiration date on evil. It put an expiration date on evil. Because love still must go out and grace still must work and hope must still be catapulted out and humanity is still working to be restored, which means we still must endure and suffer evil. We're at the in-between. Sure, April 9th. 1865, General Lee succumbs to the realities of war and gives the sword to General Grant, and officially the Civil War has come to an end. As the great emancipator proclaimed. But it would take over two months for that word to make it down to the beach of Galveston, Texas. And what's celebrated is Juneteenth. June 19th, as federal troops came into Galveston to tell the slaves that the war is over. Defeat 
of the Confederacy, April 9th, took over two months to get the word down to Texas, the in-between. And in many ways, we're still dealing with the implications of humanity's issue with race. And so every day, deliver us from evil. Deliver us from evil. What am I to do? In the same way that evil is pervasive, it's personal, it's powerful, this kingdom of night, I too am to personally and with power proclaim the kingdom of light and prayerfully suffer. Prayerfully suffer as we wage war against the darkness. That's why in many of your translations, in many of your traditions, the Lord's Prayer doesn't end with this line, does it? And deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. I'm suffering evil. I'm battling evil. But I remember yours is the kingdom and yours is the power and yours is the glory. And my coworker is a monster. And my spouse is a beast. And my addiction I fight every single day. And the governments are going at it. But yours is the kingdom and yours is the power and yours is the glory. God, deliver us from evil. And I know, Jesus, there is a time coming where what was consummated will finally be all come together and we will experience the goodness of your kingdom in all of its beauty. And God, we're praying that we would see it and experience it and walk in that dawn light. And I hold on to that it's your kingdom and it's your power and it's your glory. That your kingdom come and your will be done. Your kingdom come by your power for your glory. God, deliver us from evil. So we pray it. We pray it daily. We pray it regularly. In fact, in the, about 100 years after the life of Jesus Christ, a Christian manual by the name of the Didache comes into publication. It's basically a manual for Christians on how to follow Jesus. It's not long, but take your first how-to book. And you know what it says? A follower of Jesus should be praying the Lord's Prayer three times a day. I believe that. I can believe that. What else can we do to deliver from evil? I take a cue from Mo. I need to be locked and loaded and armed and dangerous. Right, Mo? That I might be able to confront the schemes of the devil. Carry a sword, which is the word of God. Mo has a class that she's starting up in a couple weeks, right? To help people memorize scripture, internalize scripture. The word of God is talked about as a sword. Had Paul written today? The Apostle Paul? Paul Brown, what's the standard weapon that a Marine carries into battle? Well, we got actually a few of them that we like to carry. Standard gun. M16. M16. 
For the word of God's an M16. It's what the Apostle Paul might have written had he been writing today. To confront and deal with the spiritual forces that we battle against. To know truth. To discern and decipher the lies. To give hope and wisdom. I'd encourage you to take that class. Learn how to internalize God's word. As far as evil is concerned, may it consider you armed and dangerous. Toward the ends of his life, Ali Wiesel received the Nobel Peace Prize. In his acceptance speech, he had this to say. I just wanted to read a little bit to you. I think it's a beautiful challenge for everybody, Jew and Gentile alike. I remember it happened yesterday or eternities ago. A young Jewish boy discovered the kingdom of night. I remember his bewilderment. I remember his anguish. It all happened so fast. The ghetto, the deportation, the sealed cattle car, the fiery altar upon which the history of our people and the future of mankind were meant to be sacrificed. I remember he asked his father, can this be true? This is the 20th century, not the Middle Ages. Who would allow such crimes to be committed? How could the world remain silent? And now the boy is turning to me. Tell me, he asks, what have you done with my future? What have you done with your life? And I tell him I've tried. I've tried to keep memory alive. I've tried to fight those who would forget. Because if we forget, we are guilty. We are accomplices. Then I explained to him how naive we were. That the world did know and remained silent. And that's why I swore never to be silent whenever and wherever human beings endure suffering and humiliation. We must take sides. Neutrality helps the oppressor, never the victim. Silence encourages the tormentor, never the tormented. Sometimes we must interfere. When human lives are endangered, when human dignity is in jeopardy, national borders and sensitivities become irrelevant. Wherever men and women are persecuted because of their race or religion or political views, that place must, at that moment, become the center of the universe. There is so much to be done. There is so much that can be done. One person, a Ralph Wallenberg, an Albert Schweitzer, a Martin Luther King Jr., one person of integrity can make a difference. The difference of life and death. As long as one dissident is in prison, our freedom will not be true. As long as one child is hungry, our life will be filled with anguish and shame. What all these victims need above all is to know that they are not alone, that we are not forgetting them. And when their voices are stifled, we shall lend them ours, that while their freedom depends on ours, the quality of our freedom depends on theirs. This is what I say to the young Jewish boy, wondering what I have done with his years. It is in his name that I speak to you and that I express to you my deepest gratitude as one who has emerged from the kingdom of night. We know that every moment is a moment of grace, every hour an offering. Not to share them would mean to betray them.
Our lives no longer belong to us. They belong to all those who need us desperately. To the follower of Jesus Christ, I would say, we have emerged from the kingdom of night and our life is no longer our own. Let this prayer deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. As a banner cry, a battle cry to engage in evil that is pervasive and personal and powerful. To engage the night. It says in Psalm 130, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, who could stand? I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning. More than the watchman waits for the morning. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, say it with me, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Thank you for sharing your time with us, and we'd love for the journey to continue. If you're a guest, would you consider reaching out to us? We would love to come alongside and encourage you in any way that we can. If you're someone who's joined us today and you are desperately reaching to find hope wherever you can, again, Jesus came that we would find hope. You can find hope today. If you want to send us a short note, a member of our hope team would reach out quickly, promptly, to come alongside and see what we can do to encourage you in whatever storm you might find yourself in. That's why Jesus came. That's why we're here. Jesus said there's two ways to live your life. And a wise man, a wise woman, builds their life on Jesus' instruction.